Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone with a foolproof investing strategy, or at least it will be foolproof after I win the Powerball. Oh, Eric, what is going on? But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chairs are Mike Volpe and Danny Reimer, two people I've known a very long time. They're co-founders of the San Francisco office of Index Ventures. Between the two of them, they've invested in companies such as Wealthfront, Blue Bottle Coffee, Discord, and Patreon. And I've known them forever since Danny was an, uh, an analyst. And Mike, you ran some cockamamie company in London. Uh, what's the name of that No, company? you knew me from before. Before that? that? Okay. In any case. From oh, that's Cisco. right. Cisco. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, that welcome. cockamamie company Whatever. San Jose. Yeah. Well, not that one. The one in London. Anyway, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank, Thank you. you. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. I've known you guys a long time, and you've been in the venture business for how many years has Index been going now? Uh, Index has been going since uh, 98. Right, which has started, yeah. you started a long time, and you joined, is that right, or did you both? We actually it? both joined, so joined. I joined in 2002 to open the London office. And I joined in 2009. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about your backgrounds, because you guys have a, actually a very interesting background, both of you, uh, for, for venture capital, is very different pathways. So let's start. Talking for you, Danny, first. Yes, with I pleasure. Like, okay, tell, give me your— How much time do you have? Not much. Short and dirty of your incredibly illustrious career. Yes. So, basically, I came out here in the mid-'90s to try and marry my two passions, which were art and the Internet. Mm-hmm. And I quickly realized that I loved working with Internet entrepreneurs, but I didn't want to work in the art world. Mm-hmm. And so that led me to work for uh, Boutique Investment Bank, Hammer and Quist. That's where I met you. Exactly, mm-hmm. and then took Netscape and uh, Verisign and Amazon and a bunch of companies public. You were an analyst. Correct, equity Explain analyst. Explain what that was. You were explaining companies to me a lot. Yeah, the idea was that the internet was happening and that people should buy the stocks because if they didn't buy the stocks, the companies wouldn't actually have a great career. So mm-hmm. I was I was peddling uh, these peddling early the sell side uh, early early stocks and just uh, convincing folks that the internet was going to be something very important. Mm-hmm. Was anybody listening besides me? Yeah, a few people. There are a few people. I mean, you were definitely. I remember you were at that time. You were really involved with America Online. Yes, I was because I had just joined the Wall Street Journal yes. after writing a book yes. about it. I wasn't exactly. involved with America Online. I was trying to figure out how they're going to stay in business. But um, but I remember coming here and you had some of those smarter. Uh, analysis, even though yes. you're on the uh, sell you. side. Thank you. Uh, Thank but you. your premise was that this is going to take over yeah. the world. The premise was that I just needed strong buys on pretty much everything because the world was going <laughs> to take care of the rest. The internet was yeah. such an important wave that fundamentally I had to just get investors to ride it mm-hmm. and then realized very quickly that my love was to work with entrepreneurs, not really explain stories to the buy side. So mm-hmm. I moved swiftly to venture as right. soon as I could. And you started with the Barksdale Group, Correct. right? The Correct. famous Barksdale yes. Group. You, Quincy, and Jim, right? You got was it. Was Curry in there? Peter. Peter Curry. Peter Curry, Jim, and Jim, who was an incredible CEO, CEO of, Netscape. of Netscape. Peter, who was an incredible CFO. Um, and Quincy, who was running around doing corporate development deals and yes. trying to... Uh, make sure that that uh, everyone understood that Netscape was going to be so important. Mm-hmm. So we did that, uh, Barksdale Group, and quickly realized there that they were great friends, but none of them, because they were such great operators, really liked investing in no. companies. Yeah, they wanted was... to do it themselves. Yeah. So that was a big lesson, mm-hmm. which led me to join Index, where, in fact, folks are really driven mm-hmm. to be venture capitalists and try and help grow global businesses. All right, we'll talk about Index in a second, Mike. Uh, so my story is I was born in Italy mm-hmm. uh, from Italian parents. Uh, I was Hence destined Volpe. to be a ordinary Italian child eating mm-hmm. pizza and mozzarella. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of came to a screeching halt. My dad moved to Japan, and so we lived there for 12 years, and I went to college here. 
My story with the internet actually has a little something to do with Netscape, which is that I graduated from business school in 94. Mm -hmm. And in 94, the browser was kind of uh, commercialized, Mm -hmm. the Mosaic Communications at that time. I really wanted a job there. I couldn't get one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they told me that they had no need for MBAs, mm-hmm. probably a fair call. It was a, a hot call. company. They and didn't play Frisbee well enough. That yeah, was one of the qualifications. Maybe, yeah. I wasn't as tall as Mark Hendrickson. That mm-hmm. was probably one of the issues. Anyway, uh, I decided that I needed to find a job on the Internet. And at the time, there were no Internet companies. There was no Yahoo, no eBay. Those were all 95 mm-hmm. vintage companies. And so I did a little research, and I figured out that uh, there's this thing called a router that the Internet runs on. Yep. And I figured, well, if the Internet's going to be popular— the railroad tracks must be worth something. So I joined this little company called Cisco back in 94. Uh, and uh, I thought I'd be there for two years and then go to a startup. And then one thing led to another. And Cisco went from about 1,500 people roughly when I joined uh, to 55,000 people seven right. years John later. John Chambers who bought everything in sight. Uh, yeah, and I was lucky enough to be part of the buying team. Right. So uh, I did a fair bit of that. Then the world came to an end in 2000 with the bubble, the dot-com bubble crashing. And uh, John Chambers basically said, you know what, we're not going to buy anything anymore, so you should get an honest job and go run some product stuff. Mm -hmm. So I did that for... Uh, six years, right. different product lines Juiced. and so forth. That was it. Exactly. <laughs> it was so a then, video company. Then I, then I left. It wasn't a bad idea. What did it do? It was sort of was like hot peer-to-peer Hulu is the yeah. right way to think about it. Juiced. Advertising supported peer-to-peer Hulu. Right. Company went nowhere. Yeah. Uh, Danny good was idea. on my board. You know what? I shouldn't insult you. That was a good idea. It was sort of a good idea. Yeah. Danny was on my board. Yeah. I, I didn't do particularly well for them. And then in 2009, Danny basically said, you know, you really sucked as a CEO, but you might be an okay VC. So why don't you <laughs> well, try to join an us? operator. You know all yeah, exactly. the faults to be made. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So uh, he uh, invited me to join Index and allowed me to redeem myself. So mm-hmm. I promised him that whatever money he lost in Juice, I would make him back. And I think I've tried my, I've tried my hardest to do yeah. it. Yeah. It's I that remember. guilt. I did, I did a video guilt. of you at guilt Juice. Works really well. In London, I was in London. I did a video. Italian and a Jew, guilt, perfect. (laughs) So funny. Oh my god, I totally forgot about Jews. Oh my god, my life. Anyway, so talk. So you guys started. You were kind of having a different style of venture when when you came, and not the sort of the Andreessen style of venture or the or the SoftBank. We're going to talk about those. Sure. You know, had their impact, Um, but you guys had a different kind of point of view. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the point of view from the get-go is that uh, great entrepreneurs can come out of anywhere, Mm -hmm. and we have to surround them with great talent and Mm -hmm. teams and really support them. So originally, a lot of the investments that we made, like Skype and MySQL Mm -hmm. and Net-A-Porte, were European uh, investments because very few folks were applying the Silicon Valley style of investing to Europe. Mm-hmm. And then I think we we realized that actually this notion of a global perspective of mm-hmm. truly thinking about what businesses can do and what their impact can be mm-hmm. on a global basis led us to realize, well, maybe we shouldn't be just investing in Europe. We should be investing in the U.S. as well. Right. And that was actually part of the reason that we we convinced Mike to join us mm-hmm. was that our, our thinking was, we've done this in Europe. We're you were in London. You were both in London. That's right. Based. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And you were doing a lot of like that idea. There were a whole bunches of companies. That That's you, right. That's right. That you had in exactly. There. But you. But then you moved here. So yeah. Did you have to move here? Did was there a? No. Uh, you know. I, I think. Look, uh, Danny and the team before I ever got to Index had done a fantastic job in Europe. You know, Index was a very small, tiny firm when they got started, and it had become one of the leaders, if not the leader, in Europe. And a lot of Silicon Valley firms tried to come to Europe, and it didn't yeah, work so well. Yeah, it didn't well. work so well. Excel yeah. was there, wasn't, weren't they? Uh, Benchmark was there. Benchmark, yeah. Um, yeah, so there were a few firms. It hadn't quite worked. And we looked at each other and said, well, if, if we have aspirations to make Index a, a, a truly global leadership firm, we can't mm-hmm. just do that in Europe. And the obvious place to do it from is San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we decided that we would try that, even mm-hmm. though it had never done before, never been done before. And uh, Danny and I moved over here in a renta office, um, mm-hmm. sort of a, a, a pre-WeWork, WeWork, mm-hmm. and and uh, launched the whole index activity, and, you know, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. So what were you, when you got here, obviously you were a smaller firm, less money under investment, correct? It was still substantive, but not, like, some of these firms... Actually, really... it's really not changed that much. Right. 
In the grand scheme of things, the growth fund was about the same size. It was $750 million right. instead of a billion. Right. And the venture fund was $550 million instead of $650 right. million. Right. So relatively small in today's terms. I yes. mean, how did you think about that in terms of making investments? Because now it's sort of a bit, you know, $300 million checks, essentially. I was just talking earlier uh, to um, Scott Cooper from Andreessen Horowitz, and he's like, there's so many companies that can, venture companies that can find, sign a $300, $500 million check, which is unprecedented if you think about it. So how do you, how do, when you're in the sort of land of the giant situation, how is that you know, I think you. if you look at the venture business today, I'd say broadly there's maybe a couple of schools of thought, right? Mm-hmm. One school of thought is to look at this as a financial instrument. You know, you're sort of providing capital. You do it to a large number of companies, uh, and you rely on statistics and mm-hmm. market analyses and so forth to produce a reasonable portfolio outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think the other school of thought is to sort of say you, you really are sort of uh, – an advisor and a shoulder to cry on for the entrepreneur, and you go sort of entrepreneur first up. In the former category, I don't think that capital is a material competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you, you know, your competitive advantage is who you are, your capabilities as a person, your competence, your ability to actually help the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. If you're playing the financial model, then mm-hmm. capital matters. Right. And, uh, you know, our our philosophy has been that we want to hang out with entrepreneurs and people that are doing interesting things and mm-hmm. try to lend our know-how around it, and we're not clear that necessarily having more money mm-hmm. makes us do that better. Right? But it affects your business, correct? Is that not... Definitely, definitely. There's no question... you're talking that, artisanal. You're talking kind of an artisanal right. versus that's just right. a brute force That's right. And, venture and, you know, I think that one of the interesting aspects of our business is that while they're all... There are many cycles and there are many new entrants that come in with different approaches. Fundamentally, the the actual business is very similar. Mm-hmm. It's two folks in a garage coming up with an idea, starting small and trying to build something that's going to be meaningful on a global basis. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, a lot of money is not is certainly not necessarily going to make the difference. And in fact, you could argue that it's your success is going to be inversely proportional to the amount of money that you raise. Mm-hmm. There's no direct correlation with the amount that you raise and the success of the company. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, when you start, it's going to be much more of an artisanal approach. Mm-hmm. And, but th- then you can't, I mean, when you're getting these big money in, what does it do to the market? Because first you had Andreessen Hortz coming in and they were doing a lot of money but, and sort of the fame Mark Andreessen and everything else. And then SoftBank comes in with this massive $100 billion fund. How did, when you look at that, how does that, you know, I know it in journalism when a big money, you know, yeah. money bags comes in, you're like, ah, oh, Jesus. It doesn't make it better journalism, but it makes it irritating on a, on a, on a scale. Well, two parts of it, care. Having more capital isn't entirely useless in the mm-hmm. sense that historically— um, in venture capital, we had a tougher time thinking about investing in operationally intensive businesses, mm-hmm. businesses that need lots of people. Sure, like or a, that like need a heavy, hardware firm. Or, yeah, or, or just even imagine Uber launching all these cities around the world where they need people on the ground doing things, right? Um, or very capital-intensive businesses like self-driving cars, right. right? Those, as a venture capitalist, you would look at and go like, hmm, outside of our league, can't do it. Mm-hmm. But now that those pools of capitals are available, right. the good news is you can go after businesses that traditionally you thought, yeah, there's no way this is VC-backed. All of a sudden now it feels like, oh, yeah, we can do this. We can do Instacart. We can do Lyft. We can do Uber. Mm-hmm. We can do all these things that t- traditionally weren't in our domain because that capital is available. So there's a usefulness to it. The tricky part to it is, of course, is that those large pools of capital are far less valuation sensitive. Mm -hmm. They're far less discerning. And so you find them, uh, particularly if you're in the growth fund business, you're finding that valuations are going up and that it's super competitive and so on and so forth, which is sort of a reality. So I think we collectively think of it as a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's good because we can go after new market segments that we couldn't do before. On the other hand, it's super competitive and tough out there. So how do you sell yourself, Danny? How do you then, when you don't have that Um, or don't choose to have that? Well, I think it's a question of, I mean, it's a two-way street and that fundamentally a lot of it is going to be based on the chemistry and being able to show what we've done in the past Mm -hmm. by being involved. So that if money is the differentiator in this valley, and certainly it's becoming increasingly true in Europe, we're never going to win. It's Mm going to be 
absolutely based on what we can do to help the entrepreneur. So one of them is, as I said, this notion of having a global perspective is actually a big difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, you recall the days when VCs around here refused to invest in any company without the right zip code. Right. Well, so, that's still the case in a lot of them. That's actually. still the case. We have a completely yeah. uh, orthogonal view of that, where right. we actually think that the best companies have to think outside of their domain from the get-go, from their mm-hmm. geographic domain. And we have a lot of expertise on not only helping them refine what they're going after, but especially given their first port of entry is likely going to be Europe, we have a lot of expertise on making them successful in Europe before they go after the opportunity of China and India, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to talk about that international outlook when we get back. We're here with Mike Volpe and Danny Reimer from Index Ventures. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hey, it's Tom Warren, Senior Editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So, I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It'll be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox, to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com forward slash notepad. We're here with Mike Volpe and Danny Reimer from Index Ventures. We're talking about the international perspective of venture. Um, I just recently did a podcast with Steve Case and Mark Cuban where he said, Cuban said, uh, uh, Silicon Valley is over. All the innovation is not here anymore. How do you look at that? Like having you, having moved here, Mike, congratulations. How do you look at that? Because you were talking about this global perspective. Because I do agree, you have to have a global perspective on to be successful going forward, or at least understand it um, practically to create the really new innovations. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, you hear that retort in all sorts of places, like yeah. from New York or from L.A. or from Europe or from China. And the truth of the matter is it's an and, not an or. Like mm-hmm. people make this like it's Silicon Valley is over and it's happening over there. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's happening everywhere. So mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, I think, is still an unbelievable place, a magnet of talent. You still think it is. Absolutely. You still think that you're seeing a lot of startup innovation. Absolutely. I want to talk about that in a minute. Yeah, and and frankly, I think that if I were to bet the— the, the market share chart 10 years from now, it'll still have Silicon 70%, Valley in the lead. Right, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the percentage it's seven, is. It's, it's some, 70. Like, it's some and it might not be 70, it might be 60, or it might mm-hmm. be 50, but it'll okay. still be uh, a, a great... But just because Silicon Valley exists doesn't mean opportunities elsewhere aren't mm-hmm. rising. And mm-hmm. on a percentage basis, like if you start from a low number, you're seeing geographies like Europe, you've seen China, you're seeing India, you're seeing Latin America, you're seeing cities outside of uh, Silicon Valley that are doing better and better. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Fundamentally, I think the big shift is that entrepreneurship is continuing to mainstream more, not at the expense of Silicon Valley, but in addition to Silicon Valley. Meaning mainstream more how? It's become, you know, people came here because they wanted to be entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Now people can stay in Paris and mm-hmm. be entrepreneurs, which wasn't the case a decade ago, mm-hmm. right? Or they can be in Nashville and be entrepreneurs. And in those places, entrepreneurship was not 
A, not particularly socially accepted, Mm -hmm. and certainly capital was hard to come by. Whereas now, because capital is going all over the place, Mm -hmm. you can be an entrepreneur in Nashville or in Austin or in New York or in Seattle or in Paris or in Prague and find the capital that you need. Right, but the numbers don't really show that. I think someone was pointing out to me that I think 70% goes to three cities and most of it goes to Silicon Valley. It's New York, Austin, and and Silicon Valley, essentially. And it still has that. So how, when you're trying to ha- sell although, that? Although it is, it should be said that the amount of money being deployed, back mm-hmm. to your earlier point, mm-hmm. is much larger than it was. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's grown by a multiple of 10 over the last 10 years. To other places. Globally. Right. As an aggregate amount that is going into venture and private equity. So let's talk about those global places of innovation. Europe is obviously one of your areas of expertise. What's big in Europe right now? Um, in terms of in terms of sectors, well, I mean, I, I would definitely say that there are areas that Europe has continually done well on, mm-hmm. like open source, which Mike can talk about. It's a socialist movement; it mm-hmm. had to come out of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, another one has been around e-commerce and specifically fashion. Mm-hmm. That's been a massive area. Probably a lot to do with the fact that the big houses are in France and Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's been a big part of it. And then financial services, uh, a lot of the geographies in Europe, the UK being a great example, have offered a much more welcoming regulatory environment to kick off um, these these, uh, approaches. And as a result of that, we've seen a huge number of really innovative companies all the way from insurance to payments to uh, lending um, to new bank accounts. Uh, cross-money lending. It's mm-hmm. been really In the impressive. financial area. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Go ahead. Sorry, but talk about open source. Yeah. The granddaddies of open source are Linux and MySQL, mm-hmm. both European movements to start with. I think that they're, you know, the notion of a community-driven creation of software feels very European, even Scandinavian at some mm-hmm. level. Um, and so a lot of the original open source companies come from there. Um, Elastic, which was one of ours, yeah. was founded in Amsterdam. So you do find a lot more of that movement. The Apache Foundation, I think, if I'm not mistaken, was based in Europe. So you see a lot of that. Now there's a ton of it in the U.S. as well, but it's definitely something that found its roots in Europe and continues to be fairly vibrant. Mm-hmm. What about Latin America? We haven't really spent that much time in Latin America yet, but clearly, um, I mean, the the market is becoming more and more vibrant. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that you say that because we've been looking of recent over the last six months and many more opportunities that are coming out of Latin mm-hmm. America. And what about Israel? Israel has been a yeah, very been populated yeah. market for a long time. I mean, actually, the concentration of capital to the number of people is higher in Israel yeah. than any other place in the world. I think Israel so is the only competitor to Silicon Valley that I can see in a very, you know, maybe China, of course, obviously. We'll, we'll get in that in a minute. Um, what is happening there that's interesting? Do you invest there? In China? Yeah, I know, in Israel. Yeah, in Israel, we've done here and there, mm-hmm. I would say. The the venture capital market in, in Israel is very Israel-centric. So mm-hmm. they have a very well-developed yeah, kind of do. insider market. Mm-hmm. You can make the decision to be full-time on the ground there. Or you can be a little more of a tourist. Mm-hmm. Candidly, we're a little more of a tourist. So mm-hmm. when these opportunities, Israeli founders, you know, take, for example, Elastic CEO is Israeli, but he moved to Amsterdam to start the business. Mm-hmm. And that's where we found them. And occasionally we find Israeli founders that move to the U.S. or otherwise. So we do cover the market, but we have not made the decision to have anybody on the ground there just because it's such an insider market there. Right. What about uh, China? China is an incredible market. Mm-hmm. We just didn't see the advantage that we had mm-hmm. in terms of understanding the culture, understanding the entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and really seeing what we could add. So it was really more about looking at the U.S. actually as our China. Interestingly, I meaning. think— oh, Meaning. Oh, from, from, from— Meaning that, yeah, we think that the U.S. has so much opportunity if you apply a different lens to it that a lot of opportunities come, come to, to the forefront that— a lot of our peers maybe are not are not viewing in the same way. Well, let's talk about those. What are the ones that you think are most promising? Um, do you want to start? In the U.S. or yeah. uh, the everywhere? US, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, look, we uh, we were early in fintech, and right. we still love the sector. Yeah. So we're, uh, it's probably our densest investment area mm-hmm. these days. Is, Why is that? It's a fintech space. Because you have incumbents 
mm-hmm. who have been taking advantage of com- consumers for a long time. Banks. Fee, yeah, banks and insurance companies, companies, mortgage and, companies. and mortgage companies and, you know, whether it's overage fees or credit card fees or, you know, brokerage fees or you name it. There's mm-hmm. fees everywhere. And it's an industry that's dominated by very large players who are, you know, too big to fail and pretty comfortable at what they do. So there's just a lot of opportunity and, and being tech forward um, helps. So that's a super good sector. Um, we like the theme of sort of urbanization and mobility. You know, mm-hmm. we've done things like Bird or Aurora for self-driving. And uh, that continues to be a super relevant center. So the kind of the reinvention of the city mm-hmm. by the movement of people why, and why goods. Why did you get into that? I, I think it's a critically important. It's urban mobility is something I write about a lot. I think it's a really interesting area. Uh, I, I'm not so sure of investment. I just was visiting Lime, for example, um, just talking to the company, uh, which was interesting. You know, they're developing ha- they're developing all kinds of different urban mobility solutions. So talk about Bird, because a lot of people think, this, I love scooters, as you know, but some of these valuations seem to confuse people. Can you explain why you are putting that much money into something like that or why those valuations are so high. You know, Travis tweeted this a a little while Mm -hmm. ago, but, you know, fundamentally it's all about the unit economics. And Mm -hmm. the first scooters were these sort of retail scooters that you Mm -hmm. could buy. They weren't designed for everyday use 24 by 7. Right. And that meant they broke a lot Mm -hmm. or they got stolen a lot. Um, now that the scooter companies and Bird has been the leader in this area, have developed commercial-grade scooters, yeah. the unit economics look super good. And I think people have been slow to realize that that change was afoot. And now I think that they're extremely promising. In fact, arguably, in the case of scooters, you don't have to pay the driver because mm-hmm. you're the driver. Right. And so, uh, effectively, the rake is going to be a lot better from mm-hmm. the company's perspective. So, right. uh, you know, there are skeptics around it because they worry about issues of regulation and where safety. you park these scooters and safety and so forth. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, Bird is like a two-year-old company. Right. Um, I think they're going to figure a lot of these things out. And, yeah. you know, frankly, in all the form factors also, you think of a scooter a certain way today, but it's not necessarily yeah, going to be the same form. Yeah, the three, you know, the three-wheeled see. ones, the ones that Absolutely. work on bumpy streets. Yeah. I have to tell you, the bird experience in Paris was painful on so many levels. <laughs> I think I got one of the older scooters there. Yeah. And then, of course, the French are all up in arms about, there's like 12, except there's 12 companies. I wrote a column yeah. about this because there were literally 12 companies. So it does it does create, change the urban landscape. And it's not the case in San Francisco. It's quite organized. Yeah, it's um, quite organized, but it's not dense enough. Not right? at all. Yeah, it's not it's There's hard to find. Oh, exactly. I found them when I need them. But it's you're right. I mean, yeah. I think D.C. seems to have the right amount of them, it feels like. That yeah, it's not too many a, brands in D.C. as well. Really, but I yeah. think you're going to see consolidation because if you operate right. just in D.C. or you have the small number of vehicles, it, do, it doesn't really make sense. But at the end of the day, I think you have to have an alternative transport form like that. Absolutely. So you have scooters and what? Three-wheeled vehicles? What? Uh, boosted what boards? Is, what is... Well, right now, Bird is just scooters. Scooters, right, yeah. But I think you'll see more form factors. Yeah, and Lime was in Vice, but Vice wasn't isn't such a great Bikes business. Bikes are tricky, yeah. Bikes are tricky, yep. and now everybody, and now humans they're are, almost are 100% into scooters kind of thing. Yeah. But, Kara, to your point, I mean, Paris is being figured out because fundamentally, mm-hmm. it's sort of a transportation revolution that's going right. on there. I mean, you saw the number of scooters and the mm-hmm. number of people who are using them. Right, 100%. So now they have to... Sort of urbanism has to catch up with the demand and the clear benefit of actually having these scooters around rather than having these huge cars everywhere that are stuck in traffic. Yeah. So Paris is. It was I think much more pleasant a of, on a scooter. I'll right, tell you that. Right. But the metro is quite good there. Now yeah. you have a very good, uh, you know, uh, public transportation. The buses are great. Yeah. Uh, they come every two minutes. There, it's a really. Yeah. It's, it's not, really a last mile solution. Yeah. It's the what's good about it and bad about it in parts is they when, where they have bike lanes. It's totally pleasant, especially excluding here in San Francisco. It's a really interesting. I'm thinking about the business. Like once you get the bike lanes in, it's and you can get helmets out to everybody. Yeah. yeah. It, you yeah. know there are. Injuries. You, I mean, I probably yeah. should. And be by the way, you have you know you guards. have cities like Paris and New York where there's a good metro. So, but like my hometown, Milan, yeah. which is like a European city, mm-hmm. scooters are doing super well there because right. there re- there is no public transport to mm-hmm. speak of. Right, we have two subway lines in Milan, right. and it's a so, city of three million. So urban mobility segment. Yep, yep. All urban right. mobility. Uh, mm-hmm. We're still doing a lot in the commerce area. Dan, yeah. you want to talk about that one? Yeah, I mean, in the commerce area, obviously, you've—well, it sounds like Katrina was just here, mm-hmm. and you've interviewed Katrina. Emily. Yep. You know, we've been big believers in the fact that um, a lot of the beauty industry, which is an enormous industry um, that's closer to a trillion mm-hmm. than one would think, is up for grabs. Mm-hmm. I mean, fundamentally, the combination of 
very little loyalty to specific brands because they don't really offer much. Mm -hmm. And the fact that people don't really want to go into stores mm -hmm. as much anymore and you can learn everything you need to learn through YouTube videos means mm -hmm. that a lot of folks are buying better products online. Mm -hmm. And so we think that a huge amount of the commerce landscape is going to be reinvented with these new brands, these new direct-to-consumer brands. Which you tried. Brands. You had Nasty Gal, which wasn't the Oh, most. yes, I forgot about that. You forgot about that. Why no, didn't that I'm work? I'm kidding. I never part? forget about no, that. No, why didn't that work? It didn't work because fundamentally we didn't own the supply chain. That was mm -hmm. the biggest lesson there, that in order to be a successful direct-to-consumer brand, you mm -hmm. really have to learn own everything from where it's being manufactured to where it's being packaged to where it's being delivered to mm -hmm. who it's being delivered to. And we were just skimming the surface and actually mm -hmm. repackaging product that was being developed by someone else. Right. And as a result of that, we couldn't defend our margins mm -hmm. as more and more folks looked at the way that Nasty Gal and Sophia was dressing everyone and were just literally copying everything we had to do. Mm -hmm. And also, it's it was a very particular kind of dress. Like someone That's like right. Stitch Fix, you don't know who they're part of. You know, it's not, there's like 10 different kinds That's of styles right. it there. wasn't It wasn't as close as the look. Mm -hmm. But it really became, you know, it really became mainstream, that look. Yep. And actually, you still see it today. Yeah, but when you're ways. on that cutting edge of trend, you can get really cut quickly. Correct. So Correct. when you think about that, you're in Gloss. Are you in Glossier? Is yes. Correct. So uh, you know, Katrina's on the board of Glossier. Yes. How do you? I, I interviewed Emily at a, an event. Talk about that business. I find it fascinating. They only have like a hundred SKUs. Yeah. Um, they test everything. They essentially test with customers. They're super slow to roll out. There's, it's really, it's. I'm fascinated by what they're doing. But can you talk like when you think about an investment like that? Yeah, I mean, she's a. I mean, what Emily and the team have developed is exactly what we're talking about, which mm -hmm. is first of all, she's an authority. She's mm -hmm. not an influencer. She's not a celebrity. She's an authority. She's been placed on this earth to build mm -hmm. this business. Mm -hmm. So she knows a ton and she's got so much credibility when it comes to it. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, she owns the entire supply chain. Right. So she's listening to her audience and really refining exactly what they want and then delivering it. And so what's interesting to see, as you said, there are very few SKUs, but there's no hero SKU with Glossier. Right. You know, the, f the, the, the customer really loves what it's all about. Right. And well, then, Milky Jelly Cleanser. Milky Jelly. I, I hated I like that, that it was too, so. She's way. like, this is the best cleanser you've had. I'm like, come on. Yeah. There's lots of cleansers. And I was, she's like, no, it's the best you'll have. I'm like, whatever. Lots of cleansers. And then I tried it. I'm like, oh, she's right. And I wrote her a note. I go, yeah. fuck you. It's really good. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, and then as you, I don't know Emily. if you've been to, have you been to her, the stores? Yes, I'm fascinated by the stores because I think it's your successful version of Nasty Gal. I hate to say like, they're, they're really interesting. <laughs> the stores are really interesting because they're not really stores. They're experiential places yeah. where people bond with their brand. Yeah, I don't know it's how the to next put generation it. of stores. I mean, yeah. actually, what's fun is that we have two, two companies that are really innovating in stores mm -hmm. in New York about two blocks from one another. One is Glossy, and the other one's Flight Club. Flight Club, wait, Flight Club is for sneakers. Oh, and you yes, go of course there, I've been there. And you have these, I mean, it's quite intimidating. They're on You're the just walls. surrounded by yes. all these basketball players, and I'm, they were looking at me and like, what are you doing here? You don't, you don't fit at all. Get out of right. here. Right. Um, they, you have one in L.A. too, right? Correct. Yes, I've been yeah. there. I've spent yeah. quite okay. a lot of money there. There you go. There you, you wrap go. like sneakers in plastic, like, and they're on the wall, that place. That's right, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. It was right near the other store I spent $150 on Which the sweatshirt. Was? Tyler, whatever, the creator. Okay. Oh, whatever. nice. It's Papa. It wasn't me. It was my two incredibly vain sons. Um, but they were interesting. Tell me about Flight Club. Well, Flight Club is part of GOAT, right. uh, which is a sneaker marketplace. Right. So, um, you know, basically uh, folks are becoming quite tribal in the way that they recognize one another for their expression through clothes. Mm -hmm. That's just a fact. Which is nothing new, but it's the way well, they buy them. Yeah, but it's, it is. What's new about it is that it used to be quite segmented and it wasn't many people. Now it's really mainstream. Mm -hmm. And you see it with the fact that, you know, when we invested in GOAT, the global number for sneaker sales was valued at a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And you have three players today that are going to be doing something like $3 billion themselves. Right. So it just gives you a sense of how mainstream these trends have happened. Oh, so Flight Club is the physical 
uh, presence mm-hmm. of Goat, and right. Goat is the online is the online marketplace for yeah. buying and selling guaranteed it, 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 authentic right. sneakers. It's really interesting. I bought some Game of Thrones sneakers apparently for All my right. son. I did not. I was like, I'll be fine with these tree torns, but they, it was interesting. It was really interesting because I never see my kids react so much to retail, which they don't, you know, in general. But sneaker, that, that, that store was really interesting to me. So retail, you talked about urban mobility. Any other areas? Pretty much everything that involves uh, AI machine learning, essentially right. using that, not necessarily in the cutting edge of mm-hmm. MLAI, but using that to make businesses better, particularly enterprise businesses. Mm-hmm. Danny gets to work with, you know, very fancy founders doing cool stuff, and I have to work with the nerds, but okay. that's okay. All right, okay. All right, when we get back, we're talking to Mike Volpe and Danny Reimer from Index Ventures. We're going to take a quick break now, and then we're going to talk about the future of venture capital when we return. We're back with Mike Volpe and Danny Reimer from Index Ventures. We're talking about where some interesting venture is going. Can you guys talk about sort of venture capital in general? You're talking about disrupting urban mobility or clothing or things like that. How does venture get disrupted? How do you look at that, the business now? Because you moved back to London. You left Silicon Valley. I did. So why was that? Why did I mean, you I didn't leave? exactly leave it. I mean, yes, fundamentally, here. I'm here all the time. Yes, but yeah. you, you, leave, you, you were here. Well, the, the, the intent is that, I mean, so, you know, venture capital and the Silicon Valley style of investing, which really started here mm-hmm. 50 years ago, is now a global phenomenon. And mm-hmm. we want to make sure that folks get to appreciate it in Europe. Right. And in the U.S. So mm-hmm. that's really what we're all about. It's an interesting question in terms of, you know, what's going to disrupt venture capital? Mm-hmm. So? Which my sage uh, partner okay. can yeah. answer. I, you know, we're, we're in the, mid, we're <laughs> in the midst off, of it. We're, we're sort of in the midst oh, of yeah. a big change. Right. I, I think that, you know, if, like you, if you hearken back, like, you know, 30 years ago when I got started in this business, venture capital was a, a few firms on Sand Hill Road that nobody had ever heard of. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of things that have changed. One is we've become a branded product, mm-hmm. right? You know, entrepreneurs mm-hmm. are very sensitive to the brand that we offer and so mm-hmm. forth. Two is there was a very nice definition. It used to be like these people do Series A's and these people do Series B's and these people do that. Mm-hmm. Now it's all blown up. Everybody does everything else. There's a massive amount of capital. And with that capital has come a degree of professionalism. Mm-hmm which means very data-driven, uh, very analytical, highly competitive. And essentially, I actually think that if you look in the long term, the balance of power has shifted away from venture capitalists to entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. right? No doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I once talked to Don Valentine, and I asked him what his Cisco deal was, and he said it was a four pre, three million in. Mm-hmm. That deal would never, ever happen mm-hmm. today, right? So you have this long time horizon where uh, entrepreneurs are gradually gaining the upper hand because our product is becoming more and more commoditized. Well, except that except that, that has bad impact. I mean, I look at two things. One is the ability of entrepreneurs, and I talked about this earlier with Scott Cooper, was the ability, and he doesn't like it either, of them to be able to, say, have full control of the board, a founder-controlled board. And then you lead to the situation at Facebook where he's unfireable and, and doesn't have any scrutiny that he deserves. And, you know, you look at them staying private longer because they feel like doing it, and they didn't have the scrutiny of Wall Street. You can look at Uber's problems directly related to the fact that they weren't under scrutiny, and they got to misbehave with the venture capitalists looking the other way. Is that a good thing for those founders? I know they need to be protected, but I don't think they do. I think that's just, just they just want control. Yeah, I mean, I would argue you absolutely need good board governance. Mm-hmm. The challenge that happens is that there's so much capital available mm-hmm. that the entrepreneur can pick and choose the source of capital that is least focused on that governance and mm-hmm. says, you can have my votes, you can have all your friends on the board, and I'm okay with that as long as you take my money. Mm-hmm. And that does happen. And, you know, in some circumstances, we face a choice of, like, we either have to give away the house and let the entrepreneur run with it, or we stand our ground. And I think more often than not, we try to select entrepreneurs who mm-hmm. we feel like uh, are willing to treat us like partners in the mm-hmm. journey as opposed to just a source of capital. Because as right. Danny said before, if you're a source of capital, you don't really fundamentally have a competitive advantage. How do you fight against that? Because honestly, they, they say it's a control thing, and they always say that it's for the best for the company. But I, I just think that's—I think you, you just let children run wild sometimes. Like, it's, you give them sugar, sugar, and more sugar— and then they get to do what they want. Is that will that ever change? Or I think I mean I think that uh, first of all, it's not true for every entrepreneur because right. it has to be correlated to the amount of ownership that they have mm-hmm. in the in the company. Mm-hmm. And many times, 
the ownership that they have is not it not does not much, give right. them that chance. Right. Right. Second one is that it is true that in many cases the entrepreneur has such a longer term view of what the business can do that they're really thinking, look, I want to make sure that I'm surrounded by people who are going to not second-guess me and not think of the liquidity event, mm -hmm. but actually are here for the long ride. So I think part of it is just finding the partner mm -hmm. who believes in what you're doing and is willing to support you in that way. Right. I mean, I have one entrepreneur, uh, this guy named Jack Conti. Mm -hmm. One of our themes is sort of the creative class and the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, YouTube creators, et cetera. Exactly. <laughs> always, always trying to instill it. <laughs> Um, but Jack is trying to build this company called Patreon, which enables mm -hmm. creators right, to, get uh, to get to have memberships mm -hmm. and get subsidized for what their creativity is. Mm -hmm. And you know, when he was, he doesn't have different rights. But it was very clear that when he was picking his investor, he didn't want someone who was going to see, you know, this is going to be a really lucrative thing that Facebook and mm -hmm. YouTube, et cetera, are going to fight to own. I want to go the entire way and take this company public. That's part of what we have to pitch every day. Mm -hmm. To them. What about taking money out? Like this WeWork thing is just an astonishing. What did you all think when you read that? Uh, I'm sorry, you would have not, in not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, when it wasn't you see a million for a lovely house in Palo or no, a lovely apartment no, in Palo No, no. I mean, I, I think those types of circumstances uh, we've, I haven't personally encountered one where I thought it was egregious. There were, mm -hmm. you know, there's people who have taken out five or $10 million because unfortunately buying a house in Palo Alto does cost you that much mm -hmm. these days, uh, but not too much in the success of that. And, and I would be very worried about it. Mm -hmm. um, I, there's also a caveat emptor part of this, right? Which is like somebody's buying those shares right. and you got to be asking yeah. yourself like, hello, yeah. what's going on there, yeah. right? Yeah. The other thing, though, Kara, I think that's important is a lot of entrepreneurs are not static in who they are. I mean, if you look at, say, Bill Gates, he might not have been a nice guy 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. He's doing amazing things for the world now, right? Yeah. So these people, they mature, too. And you have to uh, – you can't assume that just because they were one way – Right. Uh, they feel the pressures that people like you put on them, mm -hmm. and they evolve because mm -hmm. they understand that, you know, they mature as human beings. So I, I don't think it's a unilateral case where you can just say, well, no, of too much not. control is bad. No, of course not. But if you give them sugar, they're going to have a sugar addiction. It's just like, it just, and then I have to yell at them. So that's really well, that's what you're, that's, exactly. you're the therapist. I want you to yell at them so I don't have to deal with we it. We do. Trust me. No, yeah. we do. We, we don't like seeing them take money off the right. table. because. You know, fundamentally, it means also that they are less incentivized to create right. value for us when they sure. do that. Absolutely. All right. So another area, uh, diversity. You know, you and I have had lunch and talked about this issue. How do you guys think you're doing? I'd say be honest. progress is being made, but it's a long, long ways from where it should mm -hmm. be. Um, you know, our partner Sarah Cannon reminds us that intelligence is distributed equally between the genders. Yes, it is. And, and as it turns out, or maybe maybe yes. maybe females are smarter. Yes, but, um, that is the case, but go ahead. And, and certi certainly the, uh, the industry doesn't represent that, either in the venture capital business or in the entrepreneur business. It's probably worse from mm -hmm. a funding perspective. Like, uh, entrepreneurs are probably even more skewed towards mm -hmm. the male demo. We try to do our best uh, with the opportunities that come in front of us. Danny's, I think, on the board of six founder-led companies. Mm -hmm. Women uh, founder. What about people of color? Oh, we, the, sorry, uh, six women uh, founder-led companies. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I have three. Mm -hmm. So we try on that front. Um, four out of our last seven investment team hires are women. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying, mm -hmm. um, but it's a long journey. What's the problem fundamentally, Danny? What is the... <laughs> I mean, I think the problem is that people woke up too late to the reality that this should have been transformed years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, and now it's a question of catch up and making sure that it's an environment where women feel like they're getting the same opportunity and that they feel welcome and that they can actually blossom. I mean, I think that's the, the biggest fundamental problem, I think, is related to time and how late things started to change. Mm -hmm. You know, Kara, I think part of the issue is that this whole business of venture and funding mm -hmm. is very much about pattern matching, mm -hmm. right? So you pattern match to look for partners in your firm. You pattern match to look for entrepreneurs. And with every entrepreneur that you've looked at and every partner you've had as a male, mm -hmm. you sometimes not even knowingly have a bias for that. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to sort of 
almost hit the refresh button every time you walk into a room with an entrepreneur, every time you're interviewing a candidate, every Mm -hmm. time you have an internal meeting with people and just say, wait a minute, am I behaving in a way that allows a person of a different background to excel? It's also a matter of convenience and speed. If you're looking for convenience and speed, I think people do a lot of things for convenience they shouldn't do. They, they, They mix the, I mean, Marguerite Vester said this to me, actually interesting. You always trade convenience for good. You know what I mean? Like that you get something faster or it's easier. Yeah, that's, to that's how we, how we and pattern you, match. And the good is good enough, so it doesn't matter. Like it do, you don't see that there's other talent. Available. Although the irony is you never get the best returns by doing that. Right. I right. mean, you never, you know, we, we, we are never going, if you're just doing the same. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But that doesn't matter. It's easy. You know, it's a very easy thing. And you get yeah. good enough returns. And sometimes it's just, you know, you just happen to be lucky. All right. I want to finish up asking you about TechLash and, 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 the, and the challenges from places like China and other, uh, from, uh, from venture capitals there. There's a lot of difficulty for Chinese investors to invest here or be, own parts of companies. How do you look at the TechLash that's going on? It's not really hitting venture capital. It's more the big giant companies. Uh, from Washington, the attention. But do you is that going to affect your world? Yeah, I, I think TechLash is an important issue to think about. And but I do think it it's principally has to do with the larger companies for now. Mm-hmm. And that's basically because um, when you're small, you're fighting for survival, and right. you do everything to just win the battle that mm-hmm. day. At some point, you grow up as an organization and have to come to the realization that you have a social responsibility mm-hmm. that parallels your sort of need to survive. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of companies uh, sort of super grow and they get to the point where they're still fighting a survival battle and they for- forget or never learn or never understand that they have a social responsibility. And the tech clash is basically giving them a cold shower mm-hmm. and saying, wake up, you have a social responsibility. Well, you know billionaires are victims. You know, oh, they're all that's are. the yeah. rule of Silicon. <laughs> I'm always like, yeah. are you kidding me? Yeah. Got to be but kidding But it's, it's also interesting, you know, one of our companies, I don't know if you've met Jason Citron from Discord. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've spent any time I with have Discord. All, yeah. Explain what but it is. But it's fun. Me. It's really interesting. I mean, Discord started first. Explain what this, it does. Explain yes, what it does. First, Discord started as a game. Mm-hmm. And then they realized, okay, this game is not going to work. We're going to create a communication platform for gamers. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, they created something that gamers love. Mm-hmm. And they hang out there while they play games and between right. games. And it's become part of, you know, I was reading an article today where it's Discord is the church where gamers worship. Mm-hmm. It really has become part of the whole gestalt of being a gamer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's happened is as a result of the way that Facebook has handled things mm-hmm. and, you know, the the question of trust, Discord is now much more mainstream yeah. and has actually been adopted by folks in every industry and mm-hmm. people have Discord servers and, mm-hmm. and their community are migrating from Reddit, migrating from Facebook. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, Discord now has to figure out how to handle these people. Right, and right. This is something that they're working out. They didn't mm-hmm. plan on it. Sure. They were planning, Jason and team were thinking of just satisfying gamers for mm-hmm. a long time, but it's a much bigger uh, it's a much bigger challenge yeah. now. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think it's going to change? You see regulation. I, I would think it would be helpful for you to things to break up. You want more startups. It creates or not. You know, it's interesting because Danny and I have a little bit of a different opinion on it. Right, okay. Danny, why don't you start? Yeah, my opinion is um, I think that I think that it's worth investigating more if a breakup does make sense or not. Like, Mm -hmm. if there is so much monopolistic benefit for very few companies Mm -hmm. that fundamentally it's really crushing the innovation Mm -hmm. and the opportunities that smaller companies have. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually open, and I think that the EU might be more in line with regulatory scrutiny on these companies and making sure— 100%. Yeah. I think they have so, to. Parts so, of them have to be broken off. Yeah, so I think I think that's it's not flippant and you know laissez-faire and great co- big companies are great and actually if, if the more regulatory scrutiny there is, it will only benefit the larger companies. I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. I actually think there's more work to Absolutely. be done to figure out which parts of these businesses are giving them such a competitive advantage that it's crushing the opportunity for the consumer to get better products. When, when I see there's no new social media companies, no new search companies, yeah. no new lots of areas that need to have new, fresh thinking. Yeah. Um, and and, when, and then the argument you get from these big tech companies is we need to be this big to fight China, which I'm like, the reason we're fucked is because you're so big. Like, it's an interesting, yeah. you know, that's their argument is we need to be this big in order to fight. And I thought the only way you fight is through more startups and competition and competition of ideas. 
But Mike thinks differently. Yeah. Okay, Mike, what, what, you know, what is it, Siskel and Ebert here? No, <laughs> you know, we don't. The good news about good partners is you don't have to agree on All right, everything. What do you think? So, uh, I'm no, Cisco, I'm, I, that's I why am more in the big. camp of like, there are certainly certain things that need regulation, as mm-hmm. in like privacy needs some regulation. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that necessarily breaking up the big companies mm-hmm. is A, good for the United States, mm-hmm. good globally, because fundamentally, I get a fantastic service from Amazon and from Google. I love my Google you know and Amazon services. You're a cheap services. date. No, they get true. all your privacy and you get delivery in one day. The service is fantastic. Cheap date. Uh, I, it's, it's you get a free service. map. They gave you a free map and some email. That's they, you get, nice. they get all your information and they monetize it and they have 26 houses in Palo Alto. But I'm sorry. I, don't, I just you know, feel I, like they I got the better no deal. I have no envy of their houses in Palo Alto. I like they mine. they get the better deal. Trust me when I tell you they got the better deal. But it's not a deal to me. It's I have a good service that serves me. It's oh, fine. Uh, it's totally... I'm, I'm, I'm writing a whole column a called Cheap Date Mike Volpe. Yeah, please. That is what <laughs> you, it is. Think about that. it. Think about if you're getting... How much are you getting from them that's so good? But you know, I don't use Facebook. I know that. But that's I'm a saying perfectly general, good choice for in me. In general, the stuff you're getting is not as good as you think it is. I'm just saying. Okay. Well, I, you know, I find it pretty damn just good. Just think but, hard. Yeah. Think hard. You know what? You pay a lot for that Apple phone, you get a lot for it. I got what I paid for kind of thing. I'm yeah. just saying. Just put it in your little mind. Okay. But you always I'm like always the big companies. All right. Last question. Most overhyped trend right now in venture, least underhyped? Each of you. Mike, you start. Hmm. Mike, tech is big. Volpe, start, please. Yeah, AI is super overhyped. Overhyped. Yeah. Underhyped? Uh, s- serving small businesses. Okay. Mary, that's good. Yeah. Thanks. You okay. took that one first, No, huh? no. Go ahead. Um, you can think of something better. So I think that underhyped is food. I oh, think I food, food is going to be Agreed. massively Agreed. revolutionized. And then in terms of overhyped... Ah, sass. Enough already. Okay. Enough. Enough. Enough from Danny Reimer. Danny's my friend because he wants to break up the tech companies. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much, Mike and Danny, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. It's a privilege. Thank you. They're very smart fellas. They are smart fellas. No matter what I say about them, they're very smart fellas. Anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Mike and Danny, where can people find you online? Not on Facebook. At Volpe. At Twitter. Emmy Volpe, okay. Danny Reimer, Twitter. At, okay, good. That's a good one, Dean. You and I, I were early, I right? Think, yeah. we were there. How did you get Emmy Volpe? Couldn't get Mike Volpe? I'm Michelangelo. Okay. M-A. Oh, that's right. You're Michelangelo. I forgot you're Italian. Exactly. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it. What, what is Index? At Index Ventures? Yep. Okay, Index. cool. Are you good tweeters? I try. 6,000 yeah. followers. Okay. Oh, I wouldn't sad. mind 7,000. <laughs> that is so sad. <laughs> that is so sad. I try. I'm not like him. He's got like 400,000 or whatever. Tons. Do Tons. you? So many. So, so many. many. I don't know what to do with them. I know. I know. I have three times as a bit more as you. But okay. If you like, but it's mostly Russian bots. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcast, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants, which is a fantastic new series from Jason Del Rey. The first episode is about, a series of episodes is about Amazon and how it got to be as big as it did. Just search for them on your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.